from the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. During the 54th New York Film Festival earlier this month, we continued the tradition of daily NYFF Live Talks in the amphitheater of the Eleanor Bunin Monroe Film Center. These free events were sponsored by HBO. One of the highlights this year was a collaboration with our friends at IndieWire, who joined us to host a panel entitled I Am Indie, 20 Years of Independent Film. IndieWire chief film critic and senior editor Eric Cohn moderated a panel featuring actress and director Rose McGowan, cinematographer Ellen Curis, writer-director Ira Sachs, and documentarians Steve James and Roger Ross Williams. In celebration of IndieWire's 20th anniversary, they discussed the challenges facing independent artists today and their hopes for the future of the industry. Let's go now to their conversation. And I believe that our final panelist is not here yet. She will be here. We know that she's in transit, so we're gonna we're gonna keep uh, her Elijah the Prophet seat open here, and, and she'll fill it eventually. In the meantime, l- let's start talking about the last 20 years of independent filmmaking, since uh, you guys were all around to to see uh, how things were going back then. And uh, I'll give you a couple prompts so you don't have to work too hard to kind of get get the facts straight, but. Um, uh, Roger, why don't we start with you, because I think your trajectory is kind of fascinating since you started out in TV, uh, and you, you were doing, you were pr- producing more than directing, so what was it like at that stage of your, your life in terms of the kind of opportunities you were looking for, and, and, you know, how much were you thinking about directing a movie at that point? Yeah, so I was um, working in um, sort of mainstream media as a journalist. Um, I always say I'm a, a recovering journalist. Because um, I hated working for, with being a journalist, actually, in mainstream media. I worked for, like, ABC News. And then I got the job of my, I thought, of my career, which was covering the Sundance Film Festival for the Sundance Channel in 96, actually, the year. And, um, and I remember I had to interview all the filmmakers in competition. And I, uh, Darren Aronofsky for Pie and Neil LeBute for In the Company of Men. And, um, and I interviewed all these filmmakers and I was just so inspired and, and blown away and it was sort of a, you know, I mean, I guess every year is a golden year, but it seemed like a golden year. And, um, uh, and it, wanted, it made me want to be a filmmaker and I told myself that one day I was going to be on the other side of the camera. That's how it started. So Ira, you had just had that experience because you'd made, you'd made your first feature sort of in the immediate aftermath of getting that far how were you evaluating the options you had to make your next one? Uh, well, uh, I, fi- I finished my first feature in 96. I think I was in Sundance 97. I think I was there in January. I think I was the year after Pi, but something around that time. And I will say um, it took me nine years to make my next film. So figuring out what the independent sphere was I have to say that for me, I moved to New York in 1988. I applied as a senior in college to uh, NYU, UCLA, and USC, uh, and I got rejected from all three, which which turned out to be some some grace of something. Um, because really what happened, and I think I still hold on to this to some extent, is I moved to New York City, which was a city 
where being a filmmaker meant being an artist, and that there was a there was a there was a history of people who were making films that were extremely personal in a way that wasn't necessarily we didn't know where that was going. We just took ourselves seriously in a certain way, and I think as an independent, I've tried to hold on to that idea that that the work is what um, what will get me moving forward and. And I think that's a little different than an industry, though it interacts with an industry at all points. So Steve, Hoop Dreams was 94. So 20 years ago, you were still kind of in the immediate aftermath of all, all the attention that that movie received, much more than most documentaries. How, how did that sort of change the kind of opportunities you had as, as somebody working as a documentary filmmaker? Not always the easiest, you know, people tend to talk about narrative features more than they talk about documentaries, at least in, in this scene. Oh, hi, Rose. Oh. <laughs> Good timing. Um, well, I mean, Hoop Dreams meant I could actually have a career. Um, I, you know, I wasn't really thinking in career terms with that. I was just hoping it was PBS, there was public television money, and I was just hoping it wouldn't get shown at 11 o'clock at night on public television. So. Um, it actually gave me my uh, a brief, you know, time in L.A. and I made one low-budget narrative biopic, sports biopic, because that's because of Hoop Dreams. And then I made two cable movies that were sports biopics. Um, I'm sure you've seen them all. Um, but uh, you know, it, it, I mean, the the good thing about that was is that it gave me an opportunity to actually make some money because I didn't have any money at that time after Hoop Dreams. So, um, but then it 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 also reinforced it was a great experience, but it also reinforced how much I wanted to get back to making documentaries. Um, and then so then you know I made my second documentary that kind of straddled those films, but you know it wasn't necessarily a, a strong commercial move documentary you know it was this film Stevie that about a child molester so it wasn't not the easiest sell no wasn't the easiest sell but but it, it that experience in Hollywood re really reinforced like I really where my heart is and what, what I think I'm better at is documentary so Ellen 20 years ago was an interesting transitional moment for you as well because I think that was right around the time you started working with Spike Lee uh, his documentary for little girls. So, what was what was it like to kind of make that jump? I mean, this was not a newcomer, but for you, I can imagine it must have felt like a, a big moment, right? Well, twenty years is a long time ago. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's it's interesting because I was just thinking back to what had happened in those years prior to doing that with Spike was. Um, Swoon, Ajahn Andy Warhol, um, Angela, you know, I'd been to Sundance a lot. I, you know, the film was recognized for cinematography for Swoon and, Sund and for Angela. So I was really kind of in the cusp of being in the independent world and then being in the studio world. Because as soon as Swoon won the best cinematography at Sundance, you know, everything exploded at, at that point. You know, all of these agents had overwhelmed me. and. So I was really standing in between a lot of different worlds, the documentary world, the independent feature world, and then the studio feature world, which was really unusual for a woman at that time, but also for somebody who was just in the independent world, you know? I mean, it was, it was a place where I was kind of looking at what I wanted to do, and like you were saying, you know, it's like with documentary, it's really hard to make a living. Um, 
you know, you don't make that much money, you know, doing documentaries. But it wasn't really about the money, it was about the ideas of what I wanted to do. And um, so I had already done a lot of narrative at that point. I had done um, my first union picture. That was an, also the time when the union approached me and said, we want you to join the union. So there was a lot of things happening for me at that time. And it was actually a little bit afterwards that Spike approached me and said, listen, I have a movie that I want to do with Steve Martin. And it was a narrative film. And it was a really funny, funny movie that he had wanted to get produced, and he couldn't raise the money for it, so that's why he decided to do Four Little Girls. And he called me, and he said, um, you know, would you be interested in doing this film? Actually, before that, he had asked me to do Get on the Bus, but there was only two weeks of prep, and I didn't have enough time in between the time that I was doing another film. So as soon as he called me about Four Little Girls, I was like, yeah, I want to do it, you know, because at that time, there was a lot of, of church burnings that were going on in the South at that time. And me coming from political documentary when I first started my career, you know, I thought, that's outrageous. How can we now, in this time, be experiencing church bombings and church burnings at this time in the South? So I was like, yes, count me in. I want to go and do that. So, you know, for me, it was, uh, you know, it, it's always for me, it's been about what has propelled me in terms of the ideas. So when Spike said, I want you to do this documentary, I was very willing to get back into documentary again. So Rose McGowan, welcome. Uh, just to bring up to speed, we're talking about 20 years of filmmaking and where different people were at that, at that point in time when IndieWire was starting off as an email newsletter. Um, and in your case, it's actually very interesting. We have Ellen here talking about being a cinematographer and later you started directing. In your case, you were acting. Now you're more in the kind of filmmaking side of things. But I think it's a really unique moment to look at because the way I see it, 96, well, you were in Scream, but you had also just done Doom Generation with Greg Araki, so it's a really fascinating contrast between this kind of studio horror movie and you know one of these great American indie filmmakers who was really getting out there. So how were you sort of evaluating your options at that point? Well, my options were, uh, well, I was discovered right about a year before then, uh, about a year and a half before then, by a friend of Greg Araki's. And uh, so I had no intention of acting or dealing with Hollywood. That went well. Um, <laughs> I've been dealing with it for a long time now. And it was, it was wild. I mean, Greg said, I did, they would say, stand on your mark, you know, the X on the floor, and I would wander across the room. I didn't know what that even meant. But it was, it, you know, I learned very quickly. It's, it was boot camp for acting. And then the thing is, my life had always been uh, quite different than, say, Scream. The girls, you know, I made her... Um, I knew things like they were, you know... Um, uh, what's the word? Not dumber. Um, <laughs> studio. So let's go with that. <laughs> Um, but I knew like they'd already hired a dark-haired girl in Scream, so they weren't going to hire two dark-haired girls because then the audience would be really confused. They might think you're related, or and if you are related, you then have to have the same hair color. Those are the rules. So I was smart. When I went to the audition, I, I complimented the, uh, the producer's hair color and said, oh, I love that blonde on you. Next thing I know, my hair is now this hideous blonde, where it was very, but I wanted to be, and it was a life that I'd never known, this middle American life that I imitated, that I watched my, you know, growing up in America when I came to America, and I was fascinated by it. But the difference between those two, well, huge, obviously, you have better craft service, you have um, 
it's, it was, but Wes Craven ran a very smooth machine. And Greg did in a different way. Greg was really tough. Uh, Wes was very gentle. The difference at that point uh, was really just, you know, money. But I have to say my heart has always been with indie film in terms of what I love about it is even if it doesn't turn out well or there's missed moments or missed opportunities, it seems like everybody on that set is there trying really, really hard. And later, you know, when I wound up on, on television, it was, it was just a, it was like even a lot of people you notice on sets of indies, like they, they be a grit, but they're also an artist. Or they're, there's a lot of like double jobs and, or people have other things that they do. And there's just a lot of, I, I think, more artistry usually behind the scenes. And I feed off of that a lot. Um, so it's, it's, for me, it was the behind the scenes part was different in the, um, the amount of creativity kind of, that was around you, just as a, on the crew. There was a difference in that. And it's, it's interesting hearing all these different stories about this particular moment, because you, you really get a sense of just, it, it was a, a, there was a certain climate that was definitely exciting for people as American independent filmmakers, but at the same time, there were some very specific challenges involving how you navigate the industry that people hadn't totally figured out yet. So let's jump forward. Have they figured it out yet? <laughs> They're still figuring it out in new ways, let's put it that way. But w w let, let's assess that a bit and, and jump forward, say, 10 years or so. Uh, Roger, when did you start working on Music by Prudence? Uh, that, that must have been probably about, uh, about then, right? Yeah, yeah. I was um, covering the festival for um, Entertainment Weekly and CNN, actually. Sundance, you mean? Sundance yeah. Film Festival. And um, I, um, I, you know, again, I was frustrated working for the man, working for CNN. And I was like, I gotta get, get out of here. So I just quit, you know, took whatever I had in the bank and went to Africa. I was like, I'm just gonna go to Africa because I'd never been to Africa. Um, and I just dove in. And the, sort of, you know, when I started that film, I, um, it was such freedom. I remember the first, I landed and the second day I was interviewing Prudence and I was like, this is the greatest story of my life, I was thinking. Because it, it, it was just so, she was, it was just such raw, emotional um, beauty in what she was saying. No one had ever interviewed her. It's about a severely disabled girl from Africa who sort of, who's considered cursed by witchcraft and rises above it through her music and through her art. And that was really inspiring to me. And I sort of dove in and um, was broke, had you know not a penny to my name, and uh, came back and uh, cut a little ten-minute thing and showed it to Sheila Evans at HBO, and she said, "This is going to win the Oscar," which I was like, you know, she knows she's you know she's won more than probably I don't know anyone in documentary, and um, uh, you know it was a bit of a journey, but yes, but she was. She was right. <laughs> was she right? She called it. She was right. So Ira, nine years to make your second feature film, so that, that, that corresponds with our timeline at the moment, more or less. Well, for, um, when I was thinking about that period, for me, the big difference was 2006, that period, and 2008. And, and everything changed in 2008. 2006, I, I consider 2006 like the Bush era, and there was a lot of money. Um, for a very brief amount of time in the independent film sphere, and, and I made a film after I made a uh, film called Forty Shades of Blue in 2005, and then I qu relatively quickly got a film called Married Life, 
off the ground. Uh, and of course, 40 Shades won Sunday's Grand Jury Prize. Married Life brought you some bigger cast members. Yeah, and Married Life um, is, is, I consider it Bush-era folly, only on an economic level. I mean, for me, it was a very personal film, but I got a lot of money to make it, and that was money that the company lost, most of it. And I think there was many things like that, because I think there were individuals who were coming into the film sphere who had a huge amount of money because of the Bush-era politics. And they were going, and, and it was like, it was like real estate. Everything was just going in, but it wasn't coming out, and, the, and they were trying to figure out how that was going to work, and it didn't. And there was a huge bust in 2008. Um, in 2008, I was working on a film that I'd written with Orrin Moverman, uh, and probably 2007, 2008, and we had uh, Kirsten Dunst, Michael Shannon, Anton uh, Yelchin, Ben Foster, Melanie Griffith, and Liv Tyler, and uh, Patty Clarkson in the film, and I couldn't raise one dollar in 2000 for that film. Not one dollar. No one committed any money to that film. And that was a couple of years, and basically it was just in line with 2008. Like the money, people were no longer waste, I mean, wasting or <laughs> luxuriously spending in an industry that wasn't returning. So for me, that took, and we, maybe I won't jump your timeline, but really around 2010, I reconfigured my relationship to economics and filmmaking. Um, which we can get into later. Yeah. But no, it's okay to be loose with the timeline. It's, there's a lot of different things that, that were happening in, in different parts of the industry too. Steve, what was your experience on the documentary side where in some ways you could, you could argue there are other kinds of funding that aren't available to narrative filmmakers, certainly on the broadcasting side and so forth. What, what was your experience? You mean 10 years ago or? Yeah. Yeah. Thereabouts. Um, well, 10 years ago, I, uh, I done this film that actually Miramax funded, which is kind of funny, um, a documentary uh, called um, Real Paradise, uh, where I followed John Pearson and his family to Fiji. And um, that didn't do so well. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it was released and you know, tanked immediately, like most of my films. Um, but um, it was, uh, but you know, it was funny because, you know, they funded it but didn't want to release it. Um, so it ended up being released by Wellspring, um, now gone, but, but a good company. Not forgotten. Love those guys. Um, but, but so then I ended up, um, because I kind of came off of that, um, I ended up producing and editing a film that I didn't direct, um, partly because I really liked it and partly because I needed the money. Um, I did this film, The War Tapes, um, and, uh, and then after that, I think things started to turn around a little bit, um, not because of that film, but then I, you know, then I went and did a film that IFC TV funded. Um, and uh, anyway, so that was kind of a fallow period for me, you know, because I had, um, the Hollywood money was gone. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I had a bit of a tough stretch there. Um, and, and then things started to rebound in, in 2008. Um, but I've been really fortunate in general. I mean, I've been extremely fortunate. I've been able to continue to make documentaries with regularity, and I feel like I have funded them in about every conceivable way you can, including um, the aforementioned Stevie. At that time, again, this was during that period where I had a lot you know, going, and we had like an actual overhead deal with uh, 
with Disney uh, that I, I know. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and the great thing about an overhead deal was is that I w because I couldn't get funding on Stevie, I was able to launder about $20,000. We shot it on Super 16. So I, I, we laundered about $20,000 worth of lab expenses through that overhead deal. We kept saying, we kept saying it was research. <laughs> so Whatever there, were, it takes. There, there were good things that came out of it. So, so, so Ellen, uh, going back 10 years or so, uh, you were obviously still doing very well as a cinematographer. You'd started working with Michel Gondry, among many other people. Uh, but I believe you'd already started getting into production on your documentary, Betrayal, right? Because you spent a long time on that one. Um, yeah, so 10 years ago, I did Eternal Sunshine, which seems like forever ago. But yeah, I mean, we just had our 10th year anniversary. And um, so right after Eternal, um, there was a whole lot of people clamoring about me doing movies and um, I turned down a lot of movies because my old collaborator and very, very close friend Tom Kalin had a movie that he wanted to do um, called Savage Grace. And um, he you know, said that it, you know, he was putting the money together and so he wanted to do it in the summer and so I saved the time for the summer but fortunately, as we know, you know, things fall through. So I turned down about 10 movies because, you know, my agent thought I was absolutely out of my fucking mind. You know, I was like, what do you mean? This is like, a, you know, an $11 million movie. And I said, yeah, but Tom is one of my best friends and I always promised him I would do a second film and that we would do it together, so I'm gonna do it. So, um, you know, of course, they thought I was all crazy and I turned down all of these movies and then his film didn't happen that summer. So, of course, you know, that's the way the movie industry goes. So um, I waited, you know, so I did, a, I did a number of projects after that. I was doing a lot of commercials. I did, I can't remember what movie I did right after that. And then Tom's film came up again the following year. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna wait as long as I can and then I'm gonna have to move on. So again, I waited again and it didn't happen. So the following year I said, okay, you know what? Um, I've got it. I realized that this film that I had started as a thesis student, um, when, I was going to, when I was here in New York and I was working in the beginning of the 80s, I decided that, that I would try and go for my master's. So I was taking classes at NYU on the side when I was working with Frank Finty, who's, in the, who's here in the audience, hi Frank, who was one of the first people I worked under as an electrician. And Frank taught me a lot about light. So during that time, I decided I was going to try and go for my, MI, my MA, and I started doing this thesis project, which was this film I started. So after years, 20 years I think it was, I decided I had to go back and finish it, because um, it was just hanging over me, and I couldn't let that family down. It was a documentary about this Laotian family who had come to America from Laos. The father worked for the CIA during the war, and it was basically about what happened to the people that we hired to fight our wars for us overseas. And because the war in Iraq was getting so hot and heavy, I thought, we're doing the same thing exactly to these people as we did to the people in Southeast Asia. I have to finish this film. So I turned down a bunch of movies. I told my agent, you know, it's like, look, I've got to finish this film. I can't do any other films. Again, they thought I was crazy. And I said, I don't care. For my peace of mind, I have to finish this film. So I went back and I started working on that film. And I went back to Tavi Sook, who was the lead person in it, and I said, listen, I'll give you co-director credit, 
come back to the film, let's finish it. So we ended up finishing it and it was really tough. It was tough to put that film out because people had known my work, they knew my work as a cinematographer and I really struggled with it because I thought, wow, this is the first time that it's gonna be me. It's gonna be my voice coming out and what am I saying to the world about what my, what my voice is. It was the first time that I actually had to step forward with my stuff and, and say, here it is, you know, this is what I want to say, this is my message. And I decided one night when I was there, you know, four o'clock in the morning, you know, deciding what I was going to do, and I just thought, you know what, fuck it. I don't care, I have to just put this out there. This is what do I really want to say about this. Whatever anybody says, I don't care. I just have to put it out to the world. And that's when I put out my film, which was called Nerecoon, which was the Lao name for it. And I'm, we had so much debate over the title. You know how everybody at the end of their movies are like, what should we call this film? And um, I realized that, you know, that maybe people wouldn't remember what that means. So we decided to call it The Betrayal, which is the Lao name is Nerecoon. So yeah, so we put the film out and you know got nominated and we won the primetime Emmy. And basically, you know, what the the message was for me it was like it doesn't matter how long you've been working on a project, don't give up on it. Go back to your original ideas and finish it. It's never too late, you know. You never just you never know. So Rose, you were a decade into your you know, decade past your sort of breakout moment. How had your relationship to the different kinds of projects you were getting changed, and, and how did that sort of shift into your thinking that, hey, maybe I want to make movies too? Well, at that point, I had really, um, I decided that I was essentially being Cindy Sherman that spoke. So what I did in each role, and at that point specifically around that time, was I wound up in the most ridiculous movie, and uh, that's fine because I decided to just make it like deep performance art on somebody else's budget and um, on somebody else's time including so in in a Conan the Barbarian movie I introduced an electro complex where I was trying to fuck my dad through the entire movie and they were like bugging out because but it's okay Conan has six heads that he's just decapitated you know holding in his hand and and the thing is 2010 or 2008 that crash just wiped out so many overhead deals that people had. And it, it just really shrank the industry tremendously, uh, 2007, 2008. And they used it. And, and they also, previous to that, the writer's strike, they are you know, uh, just, I think, right before then, right? That just decimated the industry. It was really, and I believe they gained absolutely nothing uh, with that strike, but they decimated the industry. And then coupled with, like, a year or two later, the collapse of the economy, it really made it so, at that point, it was, everybody was struggling. Everybody was struggling. And I was like, how do I, I have to make money. I have to, I had a couple, I have seven brothers and sisters, and I used most of my career to put them through school. Um, and I had two left in college. And my dad's healthcare, so I was like, what? So I had to basically kind of abandon indies at that point, because also there weren't very many being made. Um, that, and I was a very specific kind of actor. I wasn't uh, like blonde and one that just looked like you could place them in any kind of role. Um, so I just did weird, as much weird stuff as I could within other people's movies. And then I started realizing, I, I, the whole time, my entire career, I was very uncomfortable. Um, I couldn't, it was like wearing wet pants. It didn't fit. I couldn't understand what was wrong with my life and everybody was telling me, everybody, how lucky I was all the time, you're so lucky, you're so lucky, you're so lucky. 
And I couldn't understand why I was that lucky uh, because my life had, like on the other side of the camera, was very, very uh, lonely and very difficult and uh, not, for me, particularly artistically rewarding because I, I was working with a lot of very um, misogynistic men that were nasty. Uh, I didn't have great luck. Uh, I had a lot of really abusive directors and I couldn't understand what the positive was at this point and I couldn't understand why I was leaving my own brain and body uh, to become a one and a half dimensional character for their pleasure and for the abuse behind the scenes. And um, so I've had a very different different experience than, than, than it, you know, these guys next to me and uh, women. Um, but for me, it became about just not living an authentic life in any way. I was like, I don't like you. I don't like this. Uh, wait. And I had this epiphany. I was like, oh my God, I hate acting. Oh my God, I've always hated acting. That's what the problem was. I couldn't figure it out. And I think that was largely because I didn't go to LA like, I must be this, I must be in film. Um, but I had studied film since I was four with my father, like really broken it down. And at that point I started hosting a show called The Essentials on Turner Classic Movies and working with Criterion Collection and doing a lot of various things that were about deep film and I couldn't understand and it finally clicked that what I loved about film was the totality of film. What I loved about it was telling a story and that frankly my stories were, uh, and the ones I was interested in, it was just a very different taste level than the people who I was working for. And so that is around the period it started that adjustment, but a lot of that was brought on by one, just heaping amounts of abuse from both the public and uh, press online and behind the scenes and just having a really, frankly, miserable time of it. And, and I was not sad when a lot of these people's movies failed because of their hubris, because of their laziness. I saw a lot of, uh, was, you know, it's obviously it's 96% men in the DGA, the Directors Guild, so it's men. And I saw a lot of their laziness and I saw a lot that they paid attention to like two departments, but the, re oh, I hired someone great, he'll do the production design. I hired someone great, he'll do this. But I couldn't see that these people had a great deep grasp on filmmaking. And to me, like, I love cinema, and that to me was entirely inexcusable. So I set about trying to correct that. And that story has a happy ending, which we're going to get to in a little bit uh, as we talk about the present moment. Well, I'm um, a free human being, so that's a happy ending. It's a good start. <laughs> um, Roger, in, in your case, with Life Animated, which, which just came out recently, you know, this is a, a movie that does not feel like a first feature. You really, it shows the, the kind of experience that you've had as a filmmaker, not just in terms of how well made the story is, but in terms of the way that it comes together, using animation, getting the, the rights to a, a book that, that it was adapted from. So talk, talk us through a little bit sort of the, the process of getting that movie done and uh, you know, what it's been like for you now in terms of evaluating the options that you have. Yeah, um, it's, it's not my first feature. It's um, God Loves Uganda. Oh, no, no, no. My, um, and um, that, so after, so, you know, so after the Oscar, you think, um, okay, every, I'm gonna get all these calls and I'm gonna get all these offers and money and agents are gonna, not one, my phone did not ring. No one called me, no agents, no, I still had this struggle to make my next film. I still had to apply for grants and get rejected and, um, you know, and, you know, I had been 
famously Kanye'd at the Oscars, um, which uh, I don't know if you guys... It's on YouTube. It's on YouTube, if you want to see it. And um, so I had also like a really sort of negative experience of an ex-producer who kind of ran up and stole the moment when I was supposed to make my speech. Um, so I was also like gun shy. And then um, and in, my, in the process of making God Loves Uganda, I um, met my uh, producer, Julie Goldman, who did Life Animated and also um, God Loves Uganda. And I, and you know, sort of like, I was like, oh wait, there are, there are like, you know, if you have a real producer and if you have a real team behind you, um, you can do this. And it was uh, a struggle. And um, so God Loves Uganda was a struggle and it premiered at Sundance and you know, it was, we had great success with that film. And then um, that made it possible for Life Animated um, I had known Ron Suskind, uh, the writer. It's based on a book. It's about an autistic kid who learns to reconnect, who lost his ability to speak or communicate, and learns to reconnect with the world through d classic Disney animated films. Um, it's a book um, by Ron Suskind, who won the Pulitzer Prize, who's a very famous writer who writes nonfiction political books inside the financial crisis or um, terrorism in the White House. And so this was a personal book, and I'd known him for 15 years because we worked together as a journalist at ABC. He used to be the editor of the Wall Street Journal, and we worked together. So when he was coming up, when he was writing the book, he said, I think this will make a great documentary. Um, and then what, what I, and I totally agreed, and Julie and I took it to A&E Indie Films. And with documentary, you know, we get a lot of our, you know, our funding comes from television, and A&E is a, Indie, indie has an indie film division that does feature theatrical release films. And um, Amy immediately, you know, Molly Thompson, who's, uh, uh, you know, just an, an, an amazing sort of force in the documentary world, um, immediately saw the potential in it. And, um, and then I, I, I had the struggle with Gala Giganda, but with Life Animated, it was fully funded by Amy, and I could make the film, and I could, and you know, it's a complex film because it goes from Owen's sort of reality and this year in his life, this transformative year in his life when he's, uh, he is um, becoming independent, um, he is in a relationship, he's graduating, and, um, and then it goes to hit this world that he creates for himself, which is the land of the lost sidekick, which is a short, actually animated short, that's playing here at the New York Film Festival. And Owen creates a world for himself of sidekicks that he identifies with only the sidekicks in Disney animated films. Um, and he invents this story of this kid who gets lost in the land of the lost sidekicks um, because the, the, the sidekicks, um, the heroes have fulfilled their destiny and the sidekicks are without heroes and they have to battle these monsters to find their inner hero and the monsters correspond to the challenges Owen has in his own life. So there's like, just screaming out to be brought to life and animated. Um, and I went to this uh, just incredible company in Paris called McGuff with these young, brilliant French animators who turned that into um, this sort of beautifully rendered, um, it's really Owen's story, but they rendered it beautifully. And, uh, and we sort of go from the reality to the animated reality and, and then to the backstory, which is how Owen got to where he is. Um, so it's, a, it's layered and um, complex, but it was the whole entire process was um, a, a joy to do because I had um, the backing of like, you know, in a sense, like a studio to do it. 
And it, and it really looks like it. Um, so I'm going to jump to Steve really quickly because I know he has to go introduce his movie Abacus that's playing here. Um, but uh, tell us really quickly about just how the last few years have been for you. It, it really seems like you've been very productive, whether it's the interrupters or life itself, such different kinds of films. But in terms of some of the challenges you were talking about earlier, it seems like you're in a good place right now. I am. <clears throat> I'm in a really good place. You should see his movie, though. It's amazing, if you haven't seen it. Um, Thanks, Steve. <laughs> you should see his movie. It's amazing, if you haven't seen it. <laughs> you can see it. It's at the festival. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that... Um, I feel like The Interrupters was kind of a, um, an important, you know, I don't know, film for me. And it's not... It's like things have been good. I No complaints, but... but that film for me was kind of um, returning to some of the same uh, concerns and, and neighborhoods uh, that Hoop Dreams. And, but, but looking at violence in Chicago and following around these three, you know, what they call violence interrupters, um, uh, you know, spending, we spent like 13 months in the streets with them, just documenting them. And, and it, what's interesting is, is that in those 13 months, we shot, I shot, I shot, I actually shot the film, which, you know, I would have loved to have had you uh, do that. But um, um, it would have been much better if you'd done it. But um, it, you know, I shot like more hours by over 100 hours more than I shot on, than we shot on Hoop Dreams in four and a half years. It's, it's, it's the nature of way documentaries gone to and Digital, right? And although we shot Hoop Dreams digitally too, but we didn't have any money. But it was, so I think that film was a real kind of breakthrough back in a way for me in, in many ways. I think it, it, helped, it helped in terms of its profile, but also creatively. Um, it was really important to me. And then with, with, Roger, with uh, the Roger Ebert film, um, Life Itself, that for me was a, um, a, a, a chance to do something very different than I've been doing. Um, which I really relished because I think that, you know, after you've been doing this for a while, um, you welcome an opportunity to do something that's different than what you've been doing, even if what you've been doing is successful. Uh, um, and so that, that, that was a really, I, I love having the opportunity to do that film because it was a departure, even though it has elements that are, you know, that plug into what I like to do. Um, but it's, you know, to do a biography of, of Roger was a gift, you know, and so. Ira, the last few years have been very productive for you. I mean, you spoke earlier about spending almost a decade between your first film and your second film. It wasn't quite that long after Love is Strange going into Little Men. So now you've got TV projects going on, you're working on another feature. How do you explain the kind of productivity that you're experiencing at the moment? Um, well, I also want to just go back to sort of talk generally about that timeline and yeah. say a lot of, I mean, you know, there's so many different things that have happened in that timeline and, and where, where I am particularly is, is maybe interesting, but it's also, I have to say that the people that I started out making narrative, dramatic, particularly dramatic, it's a very key word, film, uh, with, you know, 90% are not doing this anymore. And, and I think um, the loss of that environment, both economically but also creatively, has been a real loss to to, to American cinema, particularly. 
Um, and I really mean 90% of my peers um, are in other fields, whether they're teaching or they're doing uh, episodic, which I would say is what the successful ones are doing. And that's been very, very interesting. And I think the part of that is that independent was, I would, yeah, I could say the word co-opted, it's a little heavy-handed, but basically the term independent became a genre within a larger subset of Hollywood cinema and American cinema. And so the idea of independent being the idea of actually true economic independence or an independent voice has not been easy to sell. And if you can't sell it in this culture, then it's not easy to make. So I think there's a lot of stuff that's happened um, that is really you know, significant. Since, since I came here in 88 thinking that I was gonna be one in a group of peers who were artists making things, that's become harder than I think any of us imagined. And so many changes to the industry as well. Ellen, in fact, just today it was announced that Eternal Sunshine is gonna be a TV series. So let's talk a little bit about kind of the climate that you find yourself in now with the different kinds of opportunities that you're having and are you thinking about maybe making another movie yourself at some point? Well, I think that you mentioned before that the writer's strike was kind of a pivotal moment in our whole cinema history here and um, because it changed the way the producers and the way the studio was looking at content and what's, what's marketable content. And it's exactly what you're saying here now is that the whole kind of independent voice of the independent world was, was consumed by Hollywood or consumed by the studio uh, because they saw that there was opportunity for money there. They saw these small independent movies that were being made for very little money, relatively little money, like $10 million at the time, you know, were making lots of money for them. And so they decided that they would establish their own branches of these so-called independent, like Paramount made Vantage, and you know, so the studios were trying to capitalize on all of that and capitalize on the talent that was out there and the independent voices. But the offshoot of that is that they actually squelch the independent voice because whenever the studios get involved, of course, we know that they have to put their imprint on it and their main objective is to make money and, and not as much to put out an independent voice. So, you know, so it's interesting because I find that now the movies that I used to do, which, you know, which were ranging from 30 to $60 million movies, and then even smaller movies like Eternal Sunshine, which, you know, which, which sounds a little bit arrogant, but it was $18 million movie. We weren't considered independent. We weren't eligible for the Independent Spirit Awards because we were $18 million, or I think $20 million, when there was a cutoff. But those movies have all gone away now. I mean, really, you know, the kind of movies that are out there that are the so-called independent voices are $5 million, $6 million. It's really, really difficult for people to get money for their movies now because TV has taken over. And part of that is the whole, you know, what happened with the writer's strike and then the impending SAG strike, which scared everybody. So now there's so much TV going on. I mean, New York is booming. You can't find any crew members because everybody's working on, on episodic television. Atlanta is booming episodic television. Or you have your Marvel, or you know, which are these gigantic, gigantic movies are happening, or you know, episodic TV. So the whole landscape has changed now in terms of where that voice is coming out. I mean Can I just jump in that to sort of talk about what you asked in terms of yeah. being productive in a different way? And I would say 
and maybe this is, is, is hopeful to some extent. For me, what, when in 2008 everything shifted and there wasn't money to make this independent film, which was sort of set up to be one kind of independent film, I made an eight-minute film um, called Last Address, which was a film, thank you, um, we know each other, uh, uh, about a group of New York City artists who died of AIDS, and I shot the place where they lived at the end of their life. Um, and I would say um, that film really, you know, I couldn't raise $3 million, but I could raise $3,000, which is what I, or I spent $3,000, and I made a film from my own voice, which was also, as a queer man, as a gay man, I made a film that was speaking to a community, and that was from a place. And I think that has been sort of where I've begun to become a filmmaker again, which is also strategic. You know, from that place, I've been able to find financing within a community and support because I have a particular voice that has value within a culture. Um, so there's, there's different, different things that have come out of that that are not all sort of idealistic, but I would say that it came from saying, questioning what is the, what is the nature of independence and what is the nature of value. Yeah, and I think that's been that's empowering. It's such a good point, because when you think about the fact that, you know, there's Kickstarter now, which we didn't have before. Kickstarter, so people can reach out and say, look, this is my cause, and people can get on board. Or the equipment has changed. I mean, just when you think about that, you can buy a smaller camera, and it's, you can buy a 4K camera now for very little money, you know? And it's amazing that, you know, almost anybody can go out there and shoot a movie, you can shoot a movie, you know, you can shoot uh, a movie which you can broadcast now. That used to be a really big concern about whether it would be broadcast or not. But the equipment has now enabled a lot of people to have access to the means to production so that so you can have an independent voice, which is really important in our culture. Yeah, of course. And, and speaking of finding yourself as a filmmaker, Rose, that's a good way to kind of get into what, what you did with Dawn, your short film, which people haven't seen it, you definitely should. It, it, it's a pretty remarkable, intense little movie that in some ways feels like it, a completely... It's a full feature. A full like feature. In 17 minutes was my intention, yeah. Yeah, 17 minutes yeah. really feels like a substantial period of time, and it went to Sundance. You really got to have that experience, so... How did that change you to, to actually get to that point after thinking about it for so long? Well, it's, it was interesting. It was actually two friends of mine, these amazing writers, M.A. Fortin and Joshua Miller, who um, are doing tremendous work now. They originally came to me with the Flannery O'Connor piece, and I lost the rights at the last minute. Um, and it was an incredible piece, and I hope to still do it someday. It was amazing being, um, you know, it was nominated for Grand Jury Prize at Sundance, which was incredible, and later qualified for the Oscar, but it was interesting um, as a, it just to, for me, I finally felt like, ah, my pants fit right. Okay. And it was like, I am, and I take care, I also do the set design. I have, I have um, very specific ideas on things like that and I worked with a lot of non-specific people and, and every, of course, fairly misogynistic question I got from the press at Sundance was every, the first question, every single interview. So what did you learn from the men that you worked with? And I said, what not to do? I, I learned what not to do. I learned from their mistakes and they made many. Um, and I learned on their time. And I also learned on days that I wasn't working uh, as an actress, I would work with every department. 
and um, really sink into it. And I, for me, having my own voice has been profoundly important uh, because not only, you know, is your voice, when you go to work, normally you speak, you're talking, it might not be something you want to talk about, but it, these weren't even my words coming out of my mouth for 15 years. And for me now, so I just wrote and a script that I sold to Amazon that I'll be directing, and uh, that's great. Uh, you know, we're in the development stage of that right now. And, and for me, it's just really about, like, I get a, I, it's my turn. And I get a voice, and, I, and it is something that is so breaks my heart and what happened, like, when Paramount did Vantage, and all the studios were like, hey, it's super hip to be indie. So what they did back then in that timeline is they all established their own indie film divisions, but studios don't know how to operate on that model. They, they don't understand anything that's under X amount of money. They literally just logistically don't get it. And it, it, all of them closed. They all shuttered, primarily, most of them, um, except for Fox, I think. And that was really heartbreaking. There's been, and I also think, you know, I've thought a lot about how AIDS has decimated cinema in a lot of ways. There was a lot of voices that have been squashed that just were no longer. And I think we, as an audience, um, I'm an audience member first and foremost, just like you guys have been my whole life. And the loss to cinema and the loss to art is something I think that we need to push back at and, and ask for more because I don't need a fucking another Marvel movie. I don't, I need thought. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so on that rousing note, I think we have time for just maybe one or two questions from the audience. Uh, we can start with Jim. Just make sure to uh, wait for the microphone to get to you so that it's properly recorded uh, and all that good stuff. Just to thank you, all of you, for your work and for being here. Um, thinking of David Holtzman's diary, you know, and, and Charles Burnett's films, and the queer cinema that came out, and Christine Vachon's, all of that was independent. And something happened in the 90s or the 2000s, and it's called distribution. And I, none of you have talked about that, but I'd like to know how that part of the industry affected the kind of work that you wanted to do and maybe weren't able to do. Well, on my side for distribution, uh, what I saw in the movies that I was a part of that were trying to be sold for distribution um, by other people were, you know, that it's, this is where you have the battle, the all-time battle between creatives and not creatives. And I think that's the biggest problem for me in, especially in Hollywood, is that I meet people so often there that, wait, I'm not on the creative side. That's so tragic for you, really. No matter what I was doing, if I was a distributor, if I was in any arm of this, this business or in any business in life, I would want to be a creative at what I did. But they'll like, go like this and they'll tell you, and I think a large part of it, something people don't talk about, is that it's, it's predominantly, it's basic white male frat dudes that came. They, it wasn't sexy enough to be a hedge funder. It wasn't sexy enough to be a lawyer. They wanted to go bang actresses at the Soho House. And a lot of those people are responsible for what they put up, for what we see, and distributors included in that model. It's a fact. It's true. You know, not all of them, the majority. Um, and there was a distinct shift that I noticed between even the distributors of, say, the 90s, then going into 2000, it became like the Wild West out there with all the money that Ira was talking about. And it really changed the landscape in douchebaggery. I mean, it was <laughs> hectic, and it's still hectic, and it's real. And, and these people, you know, I would love it if they could be stopped. Um, and I would love for us to have people like us, to have representations of us, you know? Um, uh, and uh, I think we just need to ferret out the good ones. It's very difficult. 
I don't agree with everything about. I mean, a lot of distributors in New York, at least. Don't, don't. See, I, I come from the other I know, side of the pond. I don't know New York. I'm, I'm only speaking purely of the I'm, Hollywood, Los Angeles and experience. I'm saying, and I'm just saying, a lot of people. That's who awesome because I moved here. Word. In New York is. is, is, is word. But I will say that the whole concept of distribution for me is um, it's it's necessary as a filmmaker to to have the films be seen, and it's a it's a it's a point. It's a pivot point when you are no longer. Um, able to be naive or unaffected by economy because distributors need to keep the roof over their head and they need to pay their salaries. They're really worried about the everyday things of like how do they stay in business. I don't think the, the distributors that I know and particularly in, in the independent sphere outside of the studio ones, the Paramount Vantage, Fox Search, like whatever, they're not making lots and lots of money. They're not making Marvel. They're trying to stay open. So in a way, it's a moment in which you have to really be very realistic about your relationship between your work and, and the economy that you live in. And that means cultural economy as well as economic economy. So it's, um, it's like a cold shower. And I think about it at all points. And I know it's going to come at a certain point where my work, whether it be queer work specifically or or you know, challenging work in different ways in terms of form, or Little Men, a film about two boys. Uh, you know, that's a challenge within, and I, and I feel complicated feelings about it, but I don't instantly feel judgment because I do believe people are trying to stay open. So let's take one more question. Just shoot your hand in there, we'll get a mic to you. In the front row right here. Hi guys, thank you for uh, everything you've said so far. Uh, I have a general question for everyone here. Uh, what advice would you have for aspiring or emerging indie filmmakers who are about to take this long climb you've all just been describing? Who wants to go first? Put one foot in front of the other, one step forward, five steps back, keep going forward, lean into the wind, do it well, consider every aspect of filmmaking, and, and I think consider yourself as a storyteller that uh, is responsible for what you do, put out, and, and put out into the world. Make it good. Anyone else? Yeah, I mean, please. Yeah, just remember. It's just as hard to make Bikini Car Wash Part 3, so you might as well not. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> you know, and just remember, just remember where you come from in terms of that. You know, keep your passion, you know, there in front of you, because that's, what, that's the driving thing in the independent world, I think, is that the passion to be able to say, you know, what's inside of you and to put your message out there because that's, that's the thing. You have, a, you have a story to tell, so we want to hear it. So just remember that, you know, and if it's like when you lose all hope like I was, I paid a lot for my own film because I really knew that I had to get out there. So, you know, I took out a big loan against my own house so that I could get it out there. But no. that's what it takes. Not, so rec not it recommended. Takes. Don't take a loan. <laughs> I, did that, I did that too. <laughs> I, I guess I, I would say, particularly in the narrative world, but I'm sure it's also true in documentary, make, make films about things you know more about than anyone else does. Um, I would say make a community for yourself. Uh, devote yourself to other people who are making movies and care about other people because eventually you will all need each other. I'd say go to a lot of movies. See things, don't, don't go into this ahistorically. So I think continue to watch. Uh, and finally, I would say for me, there was a big moment where 
I recognize that as an in independent filmmaker, it was very important to equate being a director with being a producer and not think that there's someone else who's gonna be a parent or take care of me. And then once I really understood that deeply was when I had an agency to make movies. Roger, take us home. Yeah, um, the last thing I was going to say, don't forget to remember the universal through the personal. What? You know, which is important because if your story is a very personal story, you know, remember that there's a certain universality that people will be able to identify with and that will touch them and, and, and that will become meaningful to them. Yeah, so that's, that's part of the communication. That's basically what I, well, that's what I was going to say is that, you know, I, for me, it had to be a personal story that was so deeply personal and so painful and to go to a place that's so painful that it pains you to make it, but you have to do it. You have to do it and it carries you through that, 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 that deep truth that you're trying to get to within yourself is what's gonna carry you through as an artist to make it through the long journey as an, as an independent filmmaker and especially as a documentary filmmaker because documentaries are you know that much longer the journey is and that much hard I'm not you know I know you guys it's hard but that much harder um, there's not you know there's not the, the funding there there's not but there is you know anyone can pick up a camera but you also have to understand you know the, the, the respect the craft of, of, of filmmaking um, you can't just it's like you know we have you know in the in the Academy in which I am the governor now of the documentary branch of the Academy, there are 150, um, we get about 150 documentaries that um, people sort of just, just qualify. And most of them are, are, are made without passion. So most of them are not great. Um, and the ones that rise to the top are the filmmakers that, that, you can, that have dedicated sometimes, you know, 10 years, six years, but years of their lives to tell a story that they just had to tell and they, could stop at, they would stop at nothing to get it done. So if you have that passion, you're going to be fine. And be curious, especially about women characters and women in your films. Be curious about what a woman's life is like. I will leave you with that one because I've noticed a lot of men that aren't. And I'm not harping on that, I'm just, it's obvious, in films. And I would just say, be curious about every character. Be curious about their inner lives as well, um, besides what you want to say. What do they want to say? That's all. So we Thank gotta you. get you guys back here in 20 years. Uh, <laughs> for another one of these things. In the meantime, thanks so much. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.